0: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. ETW, void we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. plus. Hi there. This is Seth Abramovich, senior writer at The Hollywood Reporter. On this week's episode of It Happened in Hollywood, our season three finale, we're going to be covering the film that laid the groundwork for Downton Abbey. All that and more on It Happened in Hollywood. Okay, welcome back. This has been the most remarkable season. I've had so much fun. I hope you have too. And for our season closer, we have something very special. Uh, We have Julian Fellows. You probably know him from Downton Abbey. He's also the creator and showrunner of Gilded Age, which I'm really enjoying on HBO and which has a second season coming up. But it all started with this film. It was Robert Altman's third-to-last film from 2001, and it's called Gosford Park. Part of what I love about this story is that Julian Fellows wrote this uh, around the age of 50 and won the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay. I love a late bloomer story, and uh, this one... You know, takes the cake. He grew up in a sort of diplomat's family in England, and uh, very you know, well educated, upper crust, and he knew this world because his great aunts and aunts had lived in these sort of Downton Abbey-type crumbling empire mansions in England, and um, he, he, he knew the language of it. And he was put together with Robert Altman by Bob Balaban, uh, the actor you probably recognize uh, from a bunch of things, and he also plays an American movie producer in Gosford Park. They had been working on another project together, and um, when that one fell apart, they thought maybe this could work, Robert Altman wanted to make some sort of mystery, an Agatha Christie-type mystery, and um, lo and behold, it was movie magic once again. I have never met Julian Fellows until this episode, and I was so, so delighted to meet this guy. I mean, he's achieved pretty much anything you can achieve in Hollywood, but he is so down to earth, so self-effacing, so very, very funny. I promise you're going to laugh today. So without further ado, here we go. It's Julian Fellows and Gosford Park. Julian Fellows, welcome to It Happened in Hollywood. This is very exciting for me. Well, it's nice to be here. Thank you for asking me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Of course, you know, I'm a huge fan of, of your TV work, Downton Abbey and uh, The Gilded Age. I'm totally into, I'm so excited about season two. But we are a film history uh, a podcast, so we are going to be focusing on Gosford Park, which I think we could probably draw the DNA of uh, Downton Abbey
1: from Gosford Park. Would that be accurate to say? Yes, definitely, because uh, that was Gareth Name specific Idea when he when he made the suggestion of a television series like Downton, he said, "Would you ever go back into Gosford Park territory for television?" So, it, Downton was Gosford's child, but but Downton is a sunnier place than Gosford Park. The the people are cheerier, things are nicer, everything's yes. happy. Really, uh, I mean, bad things happen, but mainly things are happy. Whereas Gosford is about compromise. It's about a series of people upstairs and down who one way or another are having to compromise their real beliefs and instincts in order to do make the best of a bad job, largely. And so it's a darker place, really. Darker,
0: and also it has that uh, Robert Altman feel of uh naturalism and that you're, you're overhearing conversations which felt different in tone to Downton, which felt more uh, i don 't know how you would describe it, but more traditional drama was that uh something that you set out to do in in uh, collaborating with Robert Altman because it definitely fits into his over
1: I think so. I think that uh, very early on he had this idea. Of the moving camera. I mean, uh, every single shot in Gosford is a moving shot. Apart from one, there's a close up uh, of the maid, the, of Mary, through the car because they were cutting that scene together and they realized they hadn't got that shot. And so they sent the second unit to get it. And no one had explained that every shot had to move. So that's the only one. Apart from that, every shot in the film is moving. And that gave a sense to the audience that they were sort of gliding around these rooms in and out of these people, moving past them. Uh, and I, I thought it was very, very effective, actually. I thought it was fantastic. Yes, it's an incredible
0: film. But uh, let's go backwards. Um we can go as far back as your youth, if you don't mind, because um, I, oh. uh, uh, <laughs> I understand that uh, th- th- this world is not uh, uh, foreign to you. In fact, you, you moved in these kinds of circles. I mean, obviously, you're much younger, but,
1: but is that correct? Well, uh, you know, I don't want to overstate the case, but I, I was aware, even as a child, actually, that I had just missed a whole way of life that had gone only a few years before I was born. Of course, it didn't go totally. I mean, there's still people living in Sloan Square with a butler and the cook. But, but as a way of life that was practiced in every village all over Europe, it really was the Second World War that rather finished it off. Uh, and And yet in my childhood, there were still traces of it. And I would go with my parents and I would stay in these houses and on the top floor there would be lines of empty servants bedrooms and in some cases with the names still written on them of the last servants to have occupied them. And there was something very, I suppose, moving about that in a way, a sense of a kind of lost civilization that I had stumbled on the remains of at the age of seven or eight or whatever I was and and I would talk I I was lucky because uh, I was young and and so several of my great aunts and their cousins and so on were still alive and they'd lived that life I mean my eldest great aunt was born in 1880 she was presented in 1898 she was married shortly after that they had a house in london and a place in hampshire and she lived that life and then you know gradually it was taken away from her like many of her generation but i mean she was essentially older than Kristen scott commerce's character sylvia uh, so uh, you know i was getting a a view of that life from the horse's mouth really and and i i feel i feel very benefited by that i mean i got interested too in my family's history and they were able to talk about she this particular art had been out to india on what they used to call the fishing fleet which was to find a husband if none had materialized in london uh, and <laughs> Her uncle was the governor of Bombay, and she and her sister were sent out to find husbands. And she came back with one. The other one didn't, <laughs> but she did. So I, that other world was, was quite sort of uh, accessible to me, really, as a child. And, and I cherished an interest. I went on being interested in history, reading diaries, reading correspondence and that kind of thing. And then finally, when this... <laughs> Offer came really out of the blue, thanks to Bob Balaban, because I'd, I'd written a, a script for the actor-producer Bob Balaban, uh, which was never made, but I had. And they, he, in another part of the forest, he was looking for a writer with Robert Altman who could do a sort of, I don't know, sort of spoof of a murder mystery uh, set in an English country house. And it was Balaban who said, you know, this you won't have heard of this guy, and he's never had a film made, but this is his sort of territory. Uh, and Altman rang me up, and we had these those terrible conference calls, you know, and you can't really hear what the other person's saying and all that. <laughs> uh, and in the end, he commissioned it. So I felt tremendously blessed, actually, that the first sort of major feature film anyone had asked me to write was the subject that I had been studying all my life, effectively. So it couldn't really have been better.
0: I would say, I mean, Robert Altman and then this cast, uh, I, mean, I, I mean, it's just all stars. I uh, mean, the biggest British actors of all time or right? Helen Mirren, Eileen Atkins, Derek Jacobi, Richard Grant. I mean, it's unbelievable. Um, now, before we jump into that, you—I just—I love one aspect of your career, which is that you—you you did grow up from a, a, a diplomatic family, you know, an upper-class family in England, but you decided to come to Hollywood and try to make it, um, which I'm sure was your family was scratching their heads at that decision,
1: um, and you did have some success in Hollywood. I did have a bit of success. I did get a bit moving, but actually, uh, it was later when I came to Hollywood in the early 80s and I lived there for I forget now about two and a half three years Uh, and really I I mean I played sort of people who ran hotels or came out from under staircases saying don't worry princess you know but the the real uh, achievement of those years was that I reconnected with the camera like a lot of kids I've been interested in films and you know television and so but when i went to the drama school it was theater 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 got to get back to the boards got to get back to the stage and you know if something is repeated often enough into your ear you sort of start believing it it's the sort of theory of the great lie and uh, and i was having a theater career and i was in the west end of london for about five years doing comedies and things and then I went to Hollywood, and it sort of reminded me. This, I wasn't really interested in theater. I was interested <laughs> in film. That was where my love lay. And, and I wasn't interested. I mean, I love, you know, good theater is great. But I, I loved the process of film. I wasn't really interested in the process of theater. For me, I went from terror to boredom with hardly a middle (laughs) stage. And and, uh, and, I mean, I was the other day, I was talking to Judy Dench, who is very committed to theatre and is a real, I mean, she's very good on camera, but she is a real theatre, great actress. And she was interested in the process of theatre. That was what was so interesting that the whole process of evolving a play and finding the play as you play it and finding the laughs and all that and um and I was like that but for film and when I came back which I did eventually to do a television series I think or something like that that I I brought with me that love of film I, and the camera generally and I never lost it So, in fact, those years in Hollywood were very, very helpful to me, really, in the long run.
0: I would say so. And I'm sure you made a lot of uh, relationships and connections that would go on to serve you, like this one with Bob Balaban.
1: No, I I was very lucky. And I have a great friend out there called Sam Schwartz, who is part of the Gorfane Schwartz, head of the Gorfane Schwartz Music Agency, Music for Films. And in those days, we were both so broke. That we used to go to hamburger hamlet and split a hamburger that was our treat we would order it and cut it in half and so it's quite fun when i see him now and he's a great movie mogul <laughs> The thought of you eating
0: half a hamburger. I don't know why that really tickles me. Maybe because of all the dining scenes in your shows that are so extravagant. (laughs) And you're eating half a hamburger. But, um, okay, so those uh, successes, and including, uh, you were in the film Baby, right? The dinosaur film. The dinosaur
1: movie, I was. And I enjoyed that. It was great. Of course, it was just before all the tremendous special effects that were to come later. So it was still sort of a a dinosaur head (laughs) operated with a million wires coming out of it and people behind you clicking all these wires while the heads sort of (laughs) whirled like this. But... um, but I did enjoy it. Uh, and uh, and I and I loved that we went we were on location in Africa in the Ivory Coast and then we finished it in Hollywood. It was all very sort of glamorous and fun, you know. I love all that stuff. Yes, why
0: not? And you sh- I mean you should have been in uh, the Jurassic Park films. You certainly have the uh,
1: Attenborough Gravitas. Well, my my great pal Sam Neill was in those. <laughs> uh, and and I thought he was wonderful in them. Actually, I thought they were wonderful films. The, the Jurassic Park pictures. Yes, they are.
0: <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure about these new ones they're making, but but they're still going at it. But okay, so let's get back on track. So you're you've moved back to England. Um, you're you're acting, and and you're also becoming a bit of a BBC uh, star. You have certain uh, you're hosting things.
1: Yes, I mean. Um, I don't think one should overstate uh, the use of star. I don't think I was ever a star. I got to the point when taxi drivers recognized me. So I don't know what level of fame that is, but I don't think it's probably quite the top tier. But uh, I, I enjoyed myself, actually. I mean, I was in quite a lot of films and quite a lot of television. I had a very lucky break when Danny Boyle, cast me in a show called For the Greater Good, a series and okay. I, I had a leading part in that and that was quite a bit of a lift and then I went on doing series until I was cast in a show called Monarch of the Glen that was set in Scotland and during Monarch of the Glen I wrote Gosford Park, I watched the filming, I had to come onto Monarch late and then I won the Oscar and by the time I'd left Monarch of the Glen, I did five years, uh, my whole life had, had really changed. And then I was, I did go on presenting a bit. I did a series about country houses and I had a game show and, you know, all that sort of thing. But really, from then on, I was a writer. Uh, and so I changed gear. And so I'm curious about that change of
0: gear. I mean, uh, you know, so Robert Altman comes along and asks you to write his next film. Uh, had you been
1: writing until then? Did you have a few screenplays under your belt? Um, uh, yes, a couple. I mean, the only thing I'd written, the only things I'd written that had got made was I wrote three series for bbc children's drama which in those days was a separate department from drama it isn't now i think but anyway it was then and and i wrote three of them and they uh, the second one particularly was a new version of little lord fauntleroy and it won an international emmy and it did very well so i wasn't a complete starter but filmically i was and one of the sort of Donnet of Hollywood, as I'm sure you know, is that if you're any good, by the time you're in your early 30s, it will have started to manifest itself. So there's really no point in reading a script by an unknown writer of 50, because clearly he or she hasn't got it. And so When I appeared nominated for an Oscar for a script I'd written when I was 51 and nobody had ever heard of me, of course, (laughs) this was a source of celebration for quite a few people. I was rather thrilled with that. I loved that because I think it is wrong to assume that any group, you know, you don't have to bother with. There's no point in meeting them. There's no point in reading what they've done, uh, the fact is people's lives are different than you come through at different stages. Uh, and it worked for me, you know, and there I was clutching my statuette.
0: <laughs> and I couldn't agree with you more. I am always on the war path against what I feel is uh, rampant ageism in Hollywood and uh, dismissal of of people for whatever reason for being too old. And the uh, the fact that it all cracked open for you at 50, not that you hadn't uh, achieved a lot of things, but certainly at this level, uh, it's really inspiring to me, especially having turned 50 this year. So uh, who who knows what's in my future? So, OK, so. Let's go back to that uh, fateful phone call, uh, Robert Altman. Obviously, a total uh, legend and uh, artist, not just some uh, working uh, stiff, but uh, a real artist, auteur. Uh, and he comes to you, and uh, you're not quite sure what to make of it. But uh, w- w- he, what does he present to you in terms of the idea, and what do you, where do you take it from there?
1: Well, um, when the idea was first mooted, um, you know, I was a bit bewildered as to how it had come to me and everything but then I had these conversations on the telephone and finally Altman was uh, encouraged to, to commission me to write a first draft of a script uh whether that was through Bob Balaban's urging or you know whatever um, and what I did realize from these conversations and anyway um, uh, obviously I, you know, I knew Altman's work uh, is that he was very much in those days the master of Americana he, he explored the American way of life and, uh, and he would have these films, multi-arc multi-narrative films uh, and, and what I wanted is I thought at the moment he's, he thinks it would be fun to make a film about an English country house and all the servants and the people upstairs and so on but he doesn't really know these people. And he is at risk of feeling quite alienated from the material. So what I wanted to do is I went out and I got every film on VHS as it then was, that I could find. And I played every film for myself, having a sort of Robert Altman festival that went on for a few days. And I made notes of of the things that were common to all the films of the different narrative structures and so on and so forth. Because what I wanted was when he opened the script to his surprise, he would recognize the film. He would recognize how to make it. He would immediately understand the language of the film. Uh, And I think It worked actually, not to puff my own trumpet too much, but that he said to me later, I never really believed in this project until I read the first draft. And after that, I was sort of signed up. Uh, And so uh, I I was, that was very keen. And what, what was a happy result for me was the whole business of multi-narrative and different lengths of arcs and some stories being comedic and some stories being tragic and, you know, whatever. This ragbag of human life that was an Altman movie. Um, it suited me. I really liked it. Up until then, I had rather dealt in linear narrative. This happened and then this happened and then this happened and then the end. <laughs> and And this wasn't that. This was all different stories all platted together. Uh, and it was a fashion being explored, in fact, uh, by episodic television in America at that time. Uh, and so things like ER and Westway were qu- quite similar in structure. Uh, and it really suited me. So when I'd written the film, and you know, it turned out pretty well, uh, I, I sort of wanted to go on with that. So when I took up the idea again with Downton I did go straight back into that form of narrative so it was it was very sort of uh, momentous uh, if anything about my life is momentous but it was a momentous change for me and so it was happy I mean then Bob rang me and asked me to fly out to to see him in Malibu and work with him for a few days and I always remember very well uh, that they they sent me, um, you know, a third class ticket. What do you call it when you're in the back <laughs> of a plane? Rat and, class. <laughs> and, and, um, and and I said, oh, that's well, right. And my wife said, mm, I'm not sure about this. Uh, because you may have to work straight away. And I said, no, no. They've told me I've got a day off to get used to it. I'll be lying in my hotel room. Then I'll go to the studio and I'll get started. She said, I'm not sure. I don't really trust that plan. I think we're going to put you into club at least so you can get some sleep on the plane. So anyway, I traveled in club, which was a huge expense at that time. Uh, And I got there. And they said, we're taking you straight to the studio. You're following this car in the car we've hired for you. And Bob's waiting for you. So <laughs> actually, it was money well spent. But I, <laughs> I, I went there and we worked together. Bob had a very um, interesting imagination and he had very good ideas. Uh, I mean, I, you know, he wanted, for instance, he wanted to have organic Music and not just soundtrack. And he came up with the idea of having Ivan Novello. Now, he didn't really know anything about Ivan Novello, but that was fine because that was my job. And so mm-hmm. I went away and read biographies of Ivan Novello. And I came up with the very happy discovery that Ivan Novello, at the period we had decided on for the movie, which was November nineteen thirty-two, was a very very low patch for him, because he he'd been a big silent movie star, and then he, he, talkies didn't really suit him because the public wanted something different from their talkie stars. They didn't they didn't want uh, Rudolf Rudolph Valentino anymore. They wanted James Cagney. It was a whole shift, and uh, he he tried to get round this by remaking one of his greatest hits, greatest silent hits, which was called The Lodger, uh, an early Hitchcock film, something he overlooked perhaps. But anyway, he remade it as a talkie. And it came out in 1932 and was a total flop. (laughs) And so he thought his career was over. Now, it wasn't actually at all. And soon he would start writing the great musicals and and, uh, operettas of Perchance the Dream and the Glamorous Nights and King's Rhapsody and all of that. But that was still to come. And at this time that we built with him, he felt a failure. Now, of course, for me, as the writer, to have a movie star in a film is rather a mixed blessing because they're not very sympathetic types. But to have a movie star who thinks he's a failure was much, much better. So then I got <laughs> terribly excited about the whole thing. And we cast a Bob cast, Jeremy Norton, who I thought gave a wonderful performance. And he oh, also fantastic. could sing and and, and he and played the piano. Some of the piano is played by his brother, who is a concert pianist, but most of it is played by Jeremy which I thought was pretty good. You know, you could have the camera going from the hands to the face without a problem. And um, and I thought that turned out to be a very strong strand in the movie, in fact. But, but Bob had other ideas. I mean, I, he was very good, you know, because after all, there we were. Nobody had ever heard of me and I'd never had a film script made. He was very much an icon of his period of that time of filmmaking but we never really that never played much of a part in it we were just two fat men arguing behind (laughs) the camera and and he never sort of broke from that so i i you know i loved him lucky land casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky
0: lucky in line at the deli i guess aha in my dentist's office Just to go back to Ivor, I love that character, and, and Jeremy Northam is amazing, and that's him singing as well, right?
1: Yes. Somewhere there's another man, oh. different from this now world Now, you'll understand my shelter and watch me, please. Far more beautifully planned than the cruel yes.
0: yes. place yes. we
1: know. Inner sense and peace are there. Do you
0: think it'll be as long as usually?
1: All is good his oh, desired. I think it's awesome. all wonderful. Mm-hmm. I think it's all right. Mm-hmm. Love goes oh. never long nor tired. And I have mm-hmm. only seen one. Wow. We shall never find that lovely land love might have been. I shall never be your king nor you shall be my queen. Days may
0: pass and Are those songs that he sings uh, actual uh,
1: Ivor Novello uh, songs of the era? Or? Yes. Yes, they're all Ivor Novello songs. And we had to be quite careful to only choose Ivor Novello songs from before November 1932. Mm-hmm. And... Um, the one I always rather like, but was after 1932, is Waltz of My Heart. Waltz of My Heart, blah, 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 blah. And I put it in, cheating, really. I put it in, but um, one of the characters, I think it's Sylvia, says, Oh, I don't know that one. And he says, Oh, it's just something I'm fiddling with. So the idea was that he oh, right. started. But he hadn't released it. Right. So that's a little joke right. for me in the film. I can't believe that. Gee, I you're are not going to provide entertainment. Jennings, could I have one of those martinis, please? Yes, but That's how you got your invitation. Don't get up, please. Go on,
0: look please. Lovely. Stop. Stop. Is, uh, Thank you. Uh, lovely. What is it? I don't recognise it.
1: That's something I'm
0: working
1: I can't imagine how one ever goes about inventing a tune. Where'd you start? Good evening. <laughs> <laughs> it was rather difficult to say.
0: Well, I think you're too clever for words. Good evening.
1: Yes.
0: Lovely dress.
1: Bob was the big Ivan the Villain fan.
0: Oh, no kidding. Uh, He's singing about how he can never be alone with his sweetheart because she always brings her brother or the mother. I love that song. Very funny. (laughs) Um, So is it true that uh, uh, Robert Altman uh, gives you a list of actors that are going to be in the film and you have to write
1: characters for them? Or is
0: is that just myth?
1: No, that's myth. But uh, what he did like to do was he liked to cast very well-known actors, if he could, to play more or less every part, even the tiny ones. And I asked him once why he did that. I said, is it a sort of show-offy thing? Or what's the point of it? And he he said, I tell you what, I like to have lots of plots and lots of characters. And if you cast famous actors in all of the parts, the audience will know who they all are, and they won't muddle them up. But if you cast unknowns notes and you have 40 characters all with different stories, they get them all muddled, which I thought was rather sensible, actually. But uh, no, he, he cast these characters. And of course, the actors that he and Mary Selway lined up were quite astonishing. And I think a lot of that was that Bob was in his 70s then and he'd never made a British movie And it was pretty unlikely that there would be another British movie. So if you were a British actor and you wanted to be in an Altman movie, this was it. You didn't really have a lot of choice whether you thought it was good or bad when you read the script. I mean, (laughs) we did get turned down by a couple. um, And one rather charmingly later came up to me and said, uh, I made a mistake. I should have taken it. Because I remember, uh, he, to be nameless, but his agent was my agent. And she rang me and said, he, he says he's only got, you know, whatever it was, 15 lines or something. And I said, it's not that sort of film. They're all going to be on the screen <laughs> all the time. And right. nobody is going to notice who's saying what. It's all just going to be one long hubble-bubble going on. And um, But, of course, he didn't really believe me, and so he didn't do the film. But, but I thought it was very charming when he later said he thought he ought to have done it, because it was quite successful. But anyway, I was thrilled. I mean, you can imagine, this is the first film script you've written that anyone's making, and you start with sort of Michael Gambon and Maggie Smith and go on and Kristen Scott Thomas and Alan Bates and, and Helen. I mean, who could have dreamt it, you know? It was the most extraordinary fantasy. And I used to go in to the office, you know, the pre-production office uh, uh, quite often, and and there would be the blackboard covered in photographs of actors who were going to be in the film. I couldn't believe it. It was like (laughs) a sort of panoply of the most famous actors in Britain. It was extraordinary, really. Unbelievable. And
0: and so uh, were you on set? You said you were arguing behind the camera. So were you
1: there? Yes, I was on set, which is very unusual, as you know, for a writer. I mean, writers are usually as welcome as diphtheria on a set. <laughs> but, um, and you have, they have you there sort of three or four times just as a courtesy, but that's it. Right. Um, and, and there is actually a reason for that. I know probably my fellow union members will be annoyed with me saying this, but... There is a moment where what you intended in the set, in the scene, is less important than what the director intends. You can't really have two people working with the actor to get to the core of the scene by then. Of course, as a writer, you hope, like Billy, that the director sees your vision of the, of the script, you know. Uh, but, of course, that doesn't always happen, certainly not in every scene. But in this instance, what happened was Bob got to England in about, I suppose, November, something like that. He'd done, he'd done the Venice Festival and then he they took a flat near um, Kensington Gardens and they moved over, he and Catherine. And more and more people kept saying to him, God, you're making a film about the English class system. Good luck with that. And, and this went on and on. And, and he'd have, had a bit of a kicking for Dr. T and the women, which had not been terribly well received. And anyway, in the end, he he said to me, I would like you to be on set for the whole shoot, which is, is very unusual anyway. And Altman's reputation with writers made it even more unusual, really. Um, and he, 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 anyway, he did say it. And, and he said, your job is to make sure I'm not making a mistake by accident. He said, if I'm making a mistake deliberately, that's different. But I don't want to make any by accident. So, uh, of course, it was quite a hard job because you only opened your mouth if something was wrong you didn't say oh Bob what a well-directed scene you, you just catch them and then and, and so the moment you spoke you'd say no she isn't Lady Smith she's Lady Mary she wouldn't be in the dining room that table is wrongly laid this suitcase isn't it wouldn't be on the main staircase Bob you know. It was just no, 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 no. And that I did find quite difficult. We had a wonderful script supervisor. And every now and then, when I felt I'd said no often enough, I'd say to her, you do the next lot of no's. And and I'd nudge her when it was time. Bob, I'm afraid this won't work. But um, that was why. But, you know, it was interesting. Very early on, we'd gone... We were all there. I forget now why. I think for wardrobe tests or something like that. So it was quite a lot of the cast there, and we were all talking, you know. And um, one of the actors said to me, "Oh well, I don't really in this scene what you were blah blah." And I <laughs> said, "Oh well, you know, when I wrote that scene, I was thinking about the experience of playing my uncle, my cousin, my wife, whatever." And blah, 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 blah. And and Bob took me to one side afterwards. And he said, absolutely not. He said, that's never going to happen again. From now on, when they want to know anything about a scene, they come to me. And if I want to know what you think, I come to you. There you go. And and I, I thought it was such a lesson in the filmmaking. And he didn't really even like if I sat with the actors at lunch and things, and it, which, of course, it was quite, in a way, slightly difficult because I w- I'd been an English actor for 25 years then or 30 years, whatever. So I'd worked with lots of them. I knew lots of them. And uh-huh. so I did. it was a sort of discipline I had to impose on myself. But I don't tell that story as if Bob was wrong. I don't think he was wrong. I think he was right uh, and that they needed... And sometimes he would come to me and say in this scene, you know, blah, 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 blah. Um, but but I, I understood the principle and I, and I think he was correct. Yes, well,
0: it's that classic thing where, you know, the director is, is the the boss uh, on a film set, but then in TV, of course, it's the uh, the head writer, showrunner, executive producer who's the boss, so you finally got to be the boss uh <laughs> down. <laughs>
1: well, I, I think being a boss is usually illusory, as there <laughs> are so many elements you can't control. Right. It's right. like getting final cut. You get <laughs> final cut in your frightful puff, and then the distributor says, it's great you've got Final Cut, but if you leave that scene in, I'm not distributing it. (laughs) And then your Final Cut rather fades away. (laughs) So uh, I don't think one should ever think one has more power than one really has. Uh, But I mean, I I don't want to sound as if I'm I'm anti actor Of course, I'm not at all. And the actors were very helpful to me. Uh, And I remember one, particular moment with maggie smith when there was a big dinner scene as you say the dinner scenes which were the endless sort of the footman all the whole <laughs> shebang and we were in this scene and there's a moment in it when uh, the bob balaban character is talking about his film that he's uh, mr thing goes to whatever and it's a country house murder mystery And he's talking about it a bit. Sylvia asks him a question or something. And uh, Maggie says, and who turns out to have done it? And he said, Bob says, oh, I couldn't tell you that. It would spoil it for you. And she says, (laughs) but none of us will see it. And and of course, to Bob Altman, he couldn't see why that was funny. Because (laughs) for him making a film is a lot of work yeah, and everyone's tried to but why is it funny that no one's going to go and see this film and so all the other actors of course started saying, oh yes bob you're quite right why why that's not funny at all and they're not see the film." and i was standing there seeing one of my best laughs go up in smoke and then thankfully maggie intervened and she said I think I can make it work, Bob. And so then it was shot. And of course it was in all the trailers and everything else. So I was very, very grateful to us, Mr. Weissman, mm-hmm. yes. tell us about the film you're going to make. Oh, sure. It's called Charlie Chan in London. It's a detective story. Set in London. Well, not really. Uh, most of it takes place at a uh, shooting party in a country house, sort of like this one, actually. Uh, murder in the middle of the night, a lot of guests for the weekend, everyone's a suspect, uh, you know, that sort of thing.
0: How horrid. And who turns out to have done it? Oh, I, I couldn't tell you that. It, it would spoil it for you.
1: Oh, but none of us will see it.
0: Well, let's talk about Maggie, who, of course, went on to become the Dowager Countess of of uh, Downton Abbey. She gets your best singers and knocks them out of the ballpark every single time. How does she relate to these awful women that she plays? Awful but hilarious and often the most fun characters, but they are not nice people.
1: Well, I think Violet was quite nice.
0: Violet yes, da- the Dowager was is is sweeter, but but you know you don't want to get on the wrong side.
1: No, you didn't want to be on the wrong side, and she was very disciplined, and she was as tough on herself as she was on everyone else. <laughs> right, uh, yes. But Maggie had a kind of understanding. What what makes her very rewarding to write for is she's very layered as an actress. She can play different things at once, and so she can be very very funny in one scene and then five minutes later have you crying and you know not everyone can do that uh so that they don't turn into a different person and she had a sort of grasp i mean of course you know blimey i mean violet went on for 12 years or whatever so she had time to acquire it but but i mean things like there was a moment when Sybil died. Maggie or, or Violet came to the house and spoke to Carson about the thing. And it was the only time she touched him. She touched his arm. Mm. Never in the rest of ten hours of that did she touch it. <laughs> I thought uh. that sort of detail was marvellous, really. And not written. She did that. I think she did it. I can't really remember. But whether I'd <laughs> written it or not, she understood it. And then she walked across the hall. And just before she went into the drawing room where they were all sitting, waiting, she straightened up. Very good.
0: The best. I mean, has there ever been a better? No. <laughs> so, how, how, how wonderful for you to have, have access to her like that. No, that was fantastic. I wanted, we did not mention yet that this is a murder mystery, which was part of the fun of it, that you uh, you were guessing who it was, and, and it was uh, that Agatha Christie thing. W- what is your relationship to the whole Agatha Christie of it all? Was it something that you turn your nose up, like, oh, that old chestnut that we're going to make fun of, or do you have a serious appreciation for that uh, oh, genre? Oh, no,
1: I, I, I love Agatha Christie's writing, and I love whodunits, and I love Agatha Christie's Style was to make it into like a puzzle, like a game that you played, mm-hmm. and you were given false leads, and you know all of that stuff. I loved all that, uh, and mm-hmm. uh, and I. But the the emphasis in the film, of course, was an exploration of that life, much more than a who done it. I mean, Bob Altman said to me once, "This isn't a who done it; it's a who cares who done it," and I think that was a fairly <laughs> accurate assessment of it but i enjoyed having the murder because just when you sort of thought well okay i've got these people now then you had a new track to bind them all together and and to follow them through with and i i enjoyed that very much and i remember i um michael gambert originally in the script was a clockmaker. he was taking clocks to pieces And then uh, uh, Michael sent this message saying, would it spoil it if he was a gun enthusiast and was taking guns to pieces? Because I really am a gun enthusiast and I know how to take a gun to pieces. So, (laughs) of course, I thought that was brilliant. So I changed it. And it was yet another example where, you know, actors can be helpful to you if you'll only let them. And his precise movements through all of those scenes when he's working with the guns are very meticulous and very convincing for the simple reason that they're real he knows what he's doing and that somehow in a way i can't really explain comes off the screen that if you get the details right i mean that's why i always fuss on and and say, oh, no, and she can't do that, and she must be on this side, and they would only pour from there, and so on. Obviously, there are people out there watching it, and most of them, who don't know that. They don't know that a plate should be laid from the left and taken from the right. They don't know any of that. But if you get it all right, there's a kind of quality of believability that comes over the film, or the television show. And it seems believable. It doesn't seem necessarily a way of life that you approve of. You may disapprove of it very, very much. But it seems real. And that is something I believe. And it's something I'm happy to tell you that Robert Altman believed. He he wanted the details right, unless, as I've said, he wanted to get them wrong, to make some point or other. But basically, he wanted them Right. He didn't want them approximate. And I, and I loved that. I took to that like a Dr. to water. And
0: yeah, as an audience, you, like you said, we don't know, but we assume, you know, and, um, and it's, there's something. Well, I, really... I,
1: I hope you, I hope you feel safe in the, in the knowledge that that you're in safe hands that's what i'm after is that the audience can feel i can enjoy this film because i'm i'm being looked after i know it's not, i'm not going to be led up the garden path and and i hope that's what they think
0: well if it has your name on it, you've certainly earned uh, that seal of approval. <laughs> it's, uh, it, I, I, I'm drawn like a moth to a, uh, a light bulb when I see your name attached to a project. And it all started with this film. Oh, well, it's jolly nice of you. Thank you. It totally entranced me. Um because I do love Agatha Christie and I do love, I, I love the fact that the, that it is a sort of the, the, the murder takes place as a sort of backseat to the, to the, the, the social drama, but that it is a very satisfying murder. And it's a, it's a sort of, um, even the, the solution is a red herring because it's not, the murderer is not the murderer because he was already dead. Um, I love that. And then a very yes. emotional uh, resolution <laughs> to that, uh, between, uh, Maggie Smith and, um, Eileen Atkins, two greats, and um, what a great moment when they sort of let their guards down and, and become two sisters uh, united in grief. Uh, wonderful scene. Don't cry, Jane. They'll you. Come on.
1: You did what you felt was best
0: for him at the time. I see that now.
1: i I've lost him. I've lost him. He'll never know me now. I'm a I'm a oh my At least your boy is alive. He's alive. That's what matters. A lot of that scene was them. Uh, I I wrote the basic scene, and it starts as my scene. But they then took it on to another stage. And, you know, often that doesn't work. I mean, uh, the the word improvise is enough to make me reach for my smelling salt. But in that that instance, it did work, because they were absolutely in key with each other. They were very well balanced in the scene. And uh, I thought it was a marvellous, satisfactory, emotional moment, actually.
0: Oh yes, very earned. And after so much repression over the course of the two hours of the film, to have people be real finally and emote yeah. is uh, c- quite a, a, a resolution. It, it feels good, even though it's it's obviously a tragic uh, exchange. But uh, it it what it did feel good to finally you know let my girdle uh, open and, and feel something.
1: <laughs> well, I thought Helen was wonderful in the, Well, they both, Helen and Eileen, were both wonderful in the film. I did have one deal with helen i remember she there was for some reason or other she didn't want to say the line when when mary the maid comes down and they talk about the whole thing at the end right and and she says um but what about you what about your life and helen says didn't you hear me i'm the perfect servant i have no life and helen didn't want to say it and I was very keen that she did, because for me, that is the essential irony of that way of life, is that the less life you have, the better you are as far as your employers are concerned. So it was really a completely contradictory situation where the more you gave your life over to your employers, so the more you made their lives the most important factor, the better you were. Right. and uh, and I, I was very keen to keep it in and and finally I remember she said oh I don't think I need it I think I express it anyway and finally we did a deal there was a, another speech she thought was too long and I said okay I'll cut that speech <laughs> by a third if you say that line And uh, and in the end again it became one of the theme lines of the film so I felt I was sort of justified really
0: what gift do you think a good servant has that separates them from the others? It's the gift of anticipation. And I'm a good servant. I'm better than good. I'm the best. I'm the perfect servant. I know when they'll be hungry and the food is ready. I know when they'll be tired and the bed is turned down. I know it before they know it themselves.
1: Are you going to tear them? Why? What purpose would it possibly serve?
0: What if they find out what happened? Not much for crime to stab a dead man, is it? They can never touch him. That's what's important—his life.
1: And your life? Didn't you hear me? I'm the perfect servant. I have no life.
0: And where was Robert Altman all, in all this? I'm sure he had a say in the matter, no?
1: Oh, yes, I suppose he would have done, but he wasn't there. I can't really remember why. We were sitting on the set together talking, and he would have had a very strong word to say on the subject. But by then, the picture was nearly finished, and I think, um, you know, we were sort of within sight uh, of the end, and so those things get a little more relaxed, really. Well, I'm glad
0: you fought for the line. It is a wonderful line. And um, it it does uh, kind of explain a lot about everything about the film. So you you said that, you know, of course, this changed your life. You won an Oscar. But uh, the the film comes out, you know, what what is the first reaction? How is your life palpably different after this film comes out and is a big success? Well, it was
1: it was quite strange for me because the very nice people making Monarch of the Glen, had pushed all my scenes up because originally I said I can't do the um, third series or whatever it is because I've been asked to stand on the set while we're making this film, which is clearly an absolutely unique experience. And I'm not going to give that up to to do the third series of of this comedy show. Uh, But they were very good. And they said, no, what we'll do is we'll push up all your scenes to the end of the shoot so that you can go through the film and then fly to Scotland and we'll shoot your scenes well that was all very well of course and it was very nice of them to do it but it meant that I was in every single scene every day for about six weeks so <laughs> learning lines like the sort of demented crazy man and, um, and at the, towards the end I then was going to have a break I, th- I think I wasn't in an episode or something I forget now but anyway I was going to have a break And at the same time, I received an invitation to fly out to New York with Emma. Your wife. And watch what really was sort of the final cut. I can't remember if there were any tiny changes, but basically we flew out to see the film. But of course, because I'd been working like an absolute drudge for six weeks, I hadn't really given it much thought. I mean, I'd sort of, (laughs) you know... Uh, Anyway, and I wasn't, uh, um, you know, an important figure on on the film in those days. And um, so we got to New York and we were going into this screening. And I said to uh, Bob Altman, uh, what do you think of it, Bob? Do do you think it's any good, really? Uh, Because I hadn't seen it before the screening. And he turned to me, he said, I think we've got lightning in a bottle." And and then we went in and saw the film, and I suddenly sort of got it. I can't really explain it in a better way than that, because when you're on a set, you're worrying all the time about the details of this scene, of this movement that says, oh, that line's getting lost behind that bunch of flowers, and you're fussing on. But you don't step back much, or at least I don't. And it was my first opportunity to step back and see it as a film. Uh, and it was fantastic. And, and then uh, Emma went to the loo, I remember, and there were two or three women saying, oh, this is my favorite Altman movie. I can't believe it. Blah, blah, blah. And so it was a rather marvelous evening. We, we then bounced away high on, uh, in space for dinner somewhere with the cast and crew. And it was very happy. And then almost immediately, I got back and I finished the series. And almost immediately, I was rung up and told I'd won the New York Critics Circle Award. And that's not an envelope job. You're told you've won it. uh, And you have to get someone to come and uh, give the prize to you and so on. And... Yeah, I'd never won anything more than a cake in the village raffle, you know. And so <laughs> this was a big surprise. Uh-huh. Uh, and and then the award nomination, I didn't always win, but uh, the nominations started coming in. And then I did win, you know, various ones. And I won the Writers Guild Award. Uh, and, of course, ultimately, I won the Oscar. So that was a rather extraordinary Season in my life marking the change uh, that had come over my career. Uh, and of course, uh, I was offered work fairly soon after it. Uh, and when I went back to uh, London, uh, I know I went back up to start on the next series of Monarch of the Glen, but I only did one more, and then I think I did one or two episodes to get myself out of it after that. But um, I, I uh, went up to Scotland, and on about the first day, I was rung up by um, Cameron McIntosh uh, and asked if I would write what they rather confusingly called the book, which is really a script, of a new musical of Mary Poppins. <laughs> and. Again, rather like with Gosford, I was very lucky in that because I'd known the Mary Poppins books as a child. I had an aunt who used to read them to me in the bath and I knew them pretty well. And of course, I'd seen the film uh, and Emma uh, had only seen the film. She didn't know there were books. So uh, that was rather interesting. And I wrote that show and uh, and we put it on and then we had the, the experience of a big hit in the west end of london followed very shortly by a huge hit on broadway in the amsterdam theater and it ran on broadway i forget now five six seven years something and it's never not been on since i wrote it it's on somewhere in the world and um you know again i felt how lucky i was because I only, I'm sure, I mean, Cameron will forgive me for saying, I'm sure I was only offered the job because I just won the Oscar. And if the timing had been slightly different and he and Disney had made their arrangement of a co-production three months earlier, uh, probably it would now be Tom Stoppard sitting here giving (laughs) you his interview. (laughs) So, I, you know, I did feel very sort of transported, really, by the whole I think the whole experience was extraordinary, really.
0: You know, I don't get to speak to many Oscar winners, and I have to ask, what is that moment like? Do you go blank? (laughs) How does it feel to be up there under those lights, everyone staring at you, and you're holding an Oscar?
1: Well, uh, it was quite funny for me, because I remember I had looked at a... uh, the oscar i think it was the year before and one actor had been nominated for um best supporting or something like that and we all thought he was going to get it the, the, the sort of word was that he was going to get it i was watching my television and then the nomad came and and you know they the cameras run up to the four nominees or five nominees whatever they are and and the oscar goes to because you can't say winner anymore that's bad so you say the oscar goes to and you you can see them all slightly kind of leaning forward (laughs) uh, towards the camera that's covering them and then it was a different name and this guy and, and i thought to myself I mustn't be that guy. I mustn't be the one who swears and sinks back into his seat. And so I got my face all poised with a sort of, what a good choice kind of generous expression. And, and I was clapping away because I was quite sure it was going to be Christopher Nolan, who was also up for a very, very brilliant film. Uh, and um, was anyway... Was that Memento? memento yes memento. okay and uh and so i was clapping away lines. and then emma lent up and said it's you and so i went oh my god and i jumped out of the seat and went up the aisle and and i remembered that in the car on the way there uh it it, it you know it was not long after the terrible events of 9 uh, and so on and all that and um and I, 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 we were saying it's going to be a lot of God bless America tonight. And uh, anyway, we got there and nobody said it. And as I was walking up the aisle, and it's quite far into the ceremony, you know, I thought, well, I'm going to say it because <laughs> I, I don't believe I would have had my career in England. I was not the right type for the English establishment of that time, I don't say that particularly judgmentally. I mean, these things happen and certain types come in and go out. But the, the type favored by the then theatrical and media establishment was not me. And so I believe it was because I had been chosen by an American director, an American producer, uh, and given the opportunity that I was allowed to show what I could do so I did say god bless America I mean I had little sp- I made a little speech for but I didn't prepare it because um one I thought it would be unlucky and the other I didn't think I'd won I thought Christopher <laughs> Nolan had won so uh, so it was slightly all on the hoof and and I had my Oscar given to me by Gwyneth Portrow um, oh who's a very nice woman very very nice woman and uh, of course Then you go upstairs to every journalist in the world who asks you all these questions. And of course, when you're a glamorous movie star, you go up on your own but when you're a short, fat writer that nobody's <laughs> ever heard of, they send you up with a glamorous movie star just to sort of cheer up the whole thing. So, Gwyneth so, uh, Paltrow came up with me and we stepped out of the lift to this, you know, extraordinary thing of flashing light bulbs. And I said, God almighty. And, and, and I never forgot, she said, Welcome to my life, which I thought was rather chilling. But anyway, then they ask all the questions and everything. And then you're like, allowed, and Hollywood has rather charming bits of etiquette, which is, or did that, which is that when you win a, a prize, an, an Oscar, and you hold it, all night you never let go of it and you can go to any party you want to go to it doesn't matter whether you were invited or not you just turn up with the oscar and in you go which i thought was rather charming and we went to all sorts of parties all over town uh, and i remember um i sat next to Halle berry at the rehearsal luncheon and she said to me um Oh, Sissy Spacex won mine. Uh, and I said, Christopher Nolan's won mine. <laughs> and, and then the next thing we knew, we'd both gone to to Elton John's party, and there she was, and we both won. We were both holding <laughs> them. So we were dancing around the room, doing this kind of demented poker, uh, jumping all over the place. I mean, it was a very good night, actually. Uh, and then gradually... They they give you a sort of limousine the size of a swimming pool. And, of course, all your friends who haven't got a hire car pile in. So by the end, you get to the 20th party and you've got about 30 people stuffed in the car. But it was very good fun. I loved it. Amazing.
0: (laughs) Thank you. I think I got a taste of how your life changed that night. (laughs) Julian Fellows, uh, this was uh, honestly one of my favorite interviews ever. You are so delightful. Um, oh, <laughs> I'm not surprised, you. but but to actually experience it, this is my Oscar night. Thank you so much, uh, Gosford Park. I, I encourage everyone to to watch it. It, it was it, it's totally stood up. What a wonderful film! And then, of course, you know your contributions to TV are just immeasurable. Um, how many uh, uh, Downton Abbey films have there been now? Has it been two? two there have been two it's amazing you've created like a a star wars universe of of a british uh, aristocracy um it goes on uh-huh. and on and uh gilded age uh, again uh on hbo uh, incredible and uh, you bring it to america and um it's just so historically fascinating and um, wonderful so i can't wait for season two
1: i hope you enjoyed i'm really pleased well, i think it turned out jolly well yeah, uh, and, and the and the actors. So, while we're very lucky with the actors again. We got such marvelous actors to be in it. So, you know that a lot of it depends on that. Uh, it's so wonderful,
0: and if you love New York, if I mean, it, all of it is is just so so great. I mean, it's it's a vacation every time I turn it on. So, thank you for everything. It's so uh, wonderful to have you here. Thank you for coming.
1: No, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it.
0: Wow, thank you so much, Julian Fellows. That was. Just such an extraordinary treat. What a great, great mind and personality. So, thank you for coming on board and making the season finale to season three of It Happened in Hollywood so very special. I hope you guys enjoyed this. It was just such a pleasure for me to bring the show back uh, after an over two year absence. And so I would like to extend a thank you to all of you for listening. I'd like to extend a special thank you to all my guests. And also Matthew Whitehurst, my producer, the unsung hero who uh, makes me sound a lot more coherent (laughs) than I actually am in the studio. So Matthew, thank you. He also tracks down all those amazing clips and puts them in. And he really is the secret ingredient of what makes this show work. And I have some great news which is you're not going to have to wait another two and a half years for season four. We're going to be coming back in 2023. So look for us in the first half of 2023 for season four. Please subscribe if you haven't subscribed yet. Tell all your friends. Give us great reviews. And uh, until then, I will see you in Hollywood. plus.